For the last two weeks, my family has been captured in a world of nerdedom. Now, I don't mean to offend you if you collect comic books, and it's okay. But we were introduced to the world of comic books. Now, uh, my wife's brother passed away a few, about a month ago now, six weeks, I guess. And his widow called us about two weeks ago and said, I don't know what to do. And he was a little bit of a hoarder. And I don't know what to do with all these comic books. And I thought, oh, a hundred, 200, maybe a box. And I said, don't worry, we'll take care of it. Now, thinking what we would do with those comic books is just go to the dump and throw them away. After all, they're comic books. Now, now I realize some of you I've already offended and you're thinking, my goodness gracious, what's he talking about? Um, so on the way home from Crossville with our car packed to the brim with comic books, we stopped by a comic book store in Oak Ridge that the guy, my, my son Skyler, who, who loves wonder and he loves little action figures, and so he'll, we'll go in that store from time to time, and he's really nice to Skyler. And, and since when I see someone nice to Skyler and, and Skyler can't really ever give them anything, you know, that I think that's probably a good guy. So I said, let's just on the way home, it was kind of a flip of the coin, do we go by the landfill or do we stop by this store and just ask him, you know, well, well, what's going on? So we go in the store and I bring in one box and he also had a, 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 a kind of a fire box that's, you know, that he had some of his comics in. And so we, I brought that in too and I, and I handed him that and said, hey, listen, is this stuff worth anything? And he picked up the, he picked up and he, and he, and he, he started shaking and he said, ah, 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 I never thought I would touch one of these. <laughs> and I said, it's a comic book. And he goes, this is a first edition X-Men where, you know, the Guac Man first showed up or something. And I go, I didn't know anything about the Guac Man. Or, you know, but it was just, and, and, and so we started looking through him and he's going, oh, wow, this is, and all of a sudden, um, I realized I have a hard time believing big because I tend to live in small. And, and now, don't worry, we have found that these things are graded, and if they're graded at a 10, they're worth thousands. But if they're graded at a two, they're worth much, much less <laughs> dollars, and these are twos. But um, the Fly, 12 cent comic book, um, it's the original of the first one. Now, why did I bring up a story about some way, sometimes I see small when I ought to see big? I remember the first time I saw the Grand Canyon, I was a little boy and my parents took me there and, I, and it was one of those vacation things where you just thought, big deal, I'm going to go see a ditch. And we turn and we walk up and all of a sudden it's like, oh my goodness. I remember the first time, I, I, the, some, sometimes I've been with people the first time they've seen the ocean. And it's like, oh, wow. 
look how big, look how amazing this really is. So the first thing I want to tell you, that we have a propensity to think small. And the second thing I want to tell you is that we tend to, and I learned this from comic books as well, as I looked over the comic books that he collected over the years, they were all about power. He lived a life where, in a job he didn't like, uh, in, a, in a situation that didn't always work out the way he'd hoped. He was not a particularly, probably did not feel very powerful in his life. And so he found power in collecting stories of people with great power. And so I want you to think with me this morning about the idea of living small and unused power. The text we're going to be looking at this morning is in the book of Ephesians. Now, just a little bit of background, you know at this point, because they've done such a good job, Joel and Seth have been preaching on, on the, out, of the, out of the book, and they've done such a good job, as you, as you realize, the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians is big. It's huge. It's, this is what God has done. He's building a church. He's building a church from, from, the, from the Gentiles and Jews, and he's creating and, and the bigness of God, and it's all the what, what they would call the imperative. It's, the, it's, uh, um, uh, the, it's what's the big nature of who God is. Now, this is a hinge moment in the book because the book's about to shift from the bigness of God to how we behave. And Paul wants to make sure we don't misunderstand that what makes us better is us trying really hard. Because if you go there, you'll end up at legalism at best, hypocrisy at worst. No, in this book, which will have been read to the church in Ephesus, it would have read the church, read it to the church out loud, twice Paul stops and prays in the middle of his letter, which is unusual. It's not unusual for Paul to say in his letters, I'm praying for you. But in this letter, he actually He's so compelled by what he's wanting to say. He's so desperate that this church that he loves, that he planted, that now young Timothy is at, he was so desperate that they would catch what is true that even in the middle of the text, he just stops and prays. Now, the first prayer in chapter one is a prayer of enlightenment. It's a prayer basically that they'll get this big picture this huge picture. And then in chapter three, there's a prayer of empowerment that talks about power, where power comes from. And if you listen carefully today, and, and, and if, if I'm true to the text, and I hope I am, we will realize how we change. How do people change? How do people get from here to here? What changes a human being? Where does that power come from? So, Paul is telling the people in Ephesus, here's how big God is, and before he tells them about putting on the armor of God and husbands and wives and children, and before he gets to the behavior, he stops and has this prayer for them. And it's an important prayer, not just for the church in Ephesus, 
It's an important prayer for us to understand this morning. Let me read the prayer to you. Chapter 3, verse 14 says this. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to his riches and glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power of the spirit of your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory to the church and to Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's his prayer. So before we talk about his word and before we look more deeply at his word, before we try to see how his word would impact us, let's pray to him now. Dear Father, we come to you this morning asking that you would change us in our most inner being that you would let us understand that you dwell in us. Oh, Father, give us the courage to see the strength and power that comes from the depth of your love. Father, for the people here that are too comfortable, would you use this time together to disrupt them? For the people that are disrupted, would you use this time to comfort them? We pray in the powerful name of Jesus, amen. I wasn't sure if I'd be able to get back up. I, I, I hope whatever part of that was for show, I, I apologize and I, but when I looked at the text and I thought what it would have been like for the church in Ephesus to hear that prayer read to them they would have heard Paul, and remember the context, Paul is where? He's in prison, chained to a guard. And he writes this letter to his church, and in the letter he's so desperate, and in Jewish culture a man would stand while he prays. And so they're reading this letter to the church, and it says, I bow on my knee. I was a little embarrassed to consider doing that before you. But I decided I either had to either be a coward or a fool, and I decided to pick fool and risk um, the thought that it would mis be misunderstood. Prayer is never to be a show, but Paul is showing us how big a deal what he's about to pray is. He's, he's going to his knees. And so I'd like us to look at this prayer together. There's an introduction, there's two requests, and then there's a benediction. 
Now, the introduction, we, we just read, that, that has to do with him falling on his knees, um, and he talks about who God is. And the first request, now remember, both requests are about power. This is a prayer of empowerment. He's about to tell people how to behave. He's told people what God was like, and now he wants to make sure that people get how they change. And, and so he's talking about the power that we have in Christ. So, in verse 16, um, you get a picture of the first request. That he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through the Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. A couple of things as you think about that text. First, the, some of the good theologians in here will say, wait a minute, why is he praying that Christ would dwell in their hearts? Doesn't he already dwell there? Doesn't, when you become a Christian, doesn't Christ dwell in your heart? Yes, yes, he does. But the word he's using for dwell here is a little different than the typical word. It's a word that would mean more like make residence in. Um, we, we bought our house, we moved here two and a half years ago, we bought our house on auction. So we actually never saw the house before, uh, b- before we, we got it. We, we saw pictures of it and, and it, was, it was owned by the bank and so um, we, when we first opened the door, when I first opened the door of that house, I, I really actually had to break in the door of the house. When I broke in the door of the house, it had been an abandoned house. And I dwelt in that house. That house belonged to me. It was our home. But we've spent the last two and a half years dwelling, making it our home. And the, and, the, and the idea here is that Paul is asking that he's praying that the, that the people in Ephesus would realize that Christ would make a home residence in the hearts of the people. One of the most amazing truths that none of us believe, because we'd live different if we did. The Bible does not teach that Christianity is a set of beliefs. It says, and, and Paul is enamored by this thought, Paul says it over and over again, that Christ lives in us. That, that there's something alive about being a Christian that's different from just knowing things. That Jesus Christ, through his spirit, lives in us. What if I believed that? Well, Paul is enamored by that thought, and, and, he, and he speaks of it often. It's, it's one of his favorite theological nuggets, that we are in Christ. That we are in Christ. My power doesn't come because I try harder. My hope doesn't come because I may be able to pretend better than you. My hope for change comes from the living Christ lives in me. Wow. 
Christ lives in us. I mean, that's what he's trying to get these people to understand. Before I tell you how to behave, I've told you what God's like. I am praying that you'll be strengthened, praying for power, that you'll be strengthened in your inner being by the indwelling of Christ. Christ in you. Also note in that first request that he gives, he talks about it change in the inner being. What does that mean? In some of your translations, it'll say in the, um, the inner man. It's amazing to me that Paul does not speak about changing circumstances. Paul does not talk about externals. In this moment, Paul is saying, from a prison cell, I'm praying that you'll be strengthened and empowered at the deepest essence of your inner being by the indwelling of Christ. Your inner being is your identity. It's, your, it's how you see yourself. Identity, it's, it's, it's what you what you believe about yourself. We are incre- incredibly faithful to the images that we carry of ourselves. I'm so stupid, I can't believe I did that. We are incredibly faithful to, to the image of, of, uh, of, of our mistakes, of the way we see ourselves. And God would say, no, no, no. You need to understand the strength and the power of knowing that Christ dwells in you And that changes your very identity. My identity is not based on my money. My identity is not based on my looks. Thank goodness. My my identity is not based on my family. My, my, My identity is not based as a Christian. All those things that the world says, this is what you need to live by. This is what you hang your hat on. Or are you musical? Are you athletic? Are you wealthy? Are you clever? Are you funny? Are you... God would say, oh, those are so much smaller things than to know what it would be like to believe and to, and to live into the truth that Christ dwells in you. And if you know that Christ dwells in you, it changes your very identity. It changes who you are. It changes how you see the world. It changes how you see your neighbor because your identity isn't based on external things that could change like that. It could change in a second. Biblical identity. That's not based on you. It's based on your father. It's based on the fact that he called you to be his sons and daughters. And and he dwells in you. I mean, to the Jewish mind in in the day when they were reading this would have been scandalous. The entire Old Testament and all of its references to the temple, to the temple where God is present. Where is God present? God's presence is in the ark. God's presence is in the temple. God, and the temple is torn down. We need to build back the temple because that's where God's presence is. And then Paul says, 
Your body is the temple of God. As a Christian, you are the temple of God. You are where the presence of God dwells. That's not theoretical. That's actual. That's experiential. Christ lives. He lives. And if you know him, he lives in you. the authority, the grace, the ability to forgive, the ability to sacrifice, the ability to love. I can't do any of that. Oh, that now resides in me as a child of the King because Christ dwells in us. And Paul, on his knees, is saying, oh, to the church in Ephesus, if you would understand, you want power in your most inner being, you want your identity to change what I want you to know, I want you to allow him to dwell, to make residence in your if we believe that? What if we believe that? Boy, Paul really wanted us to believe that. See, if you don't believe that, then when it comes to the behavior of Christianity, you'll either become legalistic, self-righteous, or a hypocrite because you'll be doing it on your own. How much of my Christian life have I tipped my hat to the gospel and just done it on my own? And God is inviting a different way, a whole different perspective. Christ in us. There's a reason Paul loves that, because it's revolutionary. Christ in us. So the first thing he prays for is in this empowerment is he prays, both of them are prayers, may they grant you to be strengthened with power through the spirit in your inner being so that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love. So that's the first request embedded in the prayer of, of this prayer of empowerment. The second one follows, and he says this, may the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. He wants you to be, he's praying that you would be empowered, be given strength, to be filled with the fullness of God. How do you get filled with the fullness of God? How do you change your behavior? How do you get better? Paul would suggest the way that happens is by becoming overwhelmed 
blown away. Drunk, if you will, on the reality of God's love. It's length, it's breadth, it's height, it's depth. It's more than you can possibly imagine. God's love is bigger than you will ever be able to fathom. It is more, we are, we are so far from being able to understand. We can't imagine the enormity, the essence of his love. It's interesting. Paul does not pray, let the church in Ephesus love God more. I mean, that's a good prayer. You know, God, let us love you more. That'd be a good prayer. He thinks it's more important to, test, to, to pray that they would spend their time thinking about how much more God loves them than they can imagine. Last few weeks, I've been working at a, at a renew clinic at night. Appreciate the fact this church is involved with that. It's an addiction clinic downtown that is biblically rooted and clinically informed in the way they do their business. There's a couple of people in the program now that they just can't imagine the fact that God would love them. And I don't think they're going to get better until they figure that out. They feel they've burned too many bridges, messed up too many relationships. And they believe the gospel's beyond them. And I don't think they'll get better until they figure out the breadth, the length, the depth, the height of God's love for them. Because instead, they'll just focus on themselves. What an exhausting thing to focus on. What a hopeless thing to focus on. I realize the Knoxville Zoo is really nice now. It wasn't always nice. I lived in Knoxville in the 70s. And I remember going to the Knoxville Zoo And it was kind of a smelly, nasty little place. And I remember there was a cage, probably about half the size of this stage, that there was a lion in. And back behind it, there was this beautiful picture of a lion with the Serengeti in the background and the, the majesty of this lion and this, the beauty and the, the mane power and the raw strength of this, this amazing animal. But there, laying in a patch of dust, a little bit of grass, was an old, tired, mane matted up lion 
junior high kids would throw stuff at it, trying to get it to make noise. Never did. It lost sight of what it was. It was a lion. But because of the circumstances, it's forgotten. And it lived like just a, kind of a waste of time. I always thought one day some junior high kid would throw a straw at it and it would just rear up and roar and not for just a moment it would be a lion again. I never saw that. I think sometimes Paul's fear was that the church in Ephesus would, because it was in a pagan society, a very difficult place, would end up being a lion that doesn't realize its power. It's a little many years ago now, but my son Pierce, he's a great musician. He's really quite a musician. Didn't get that from me. And when he was in finishing up high school, he, he was in a band called Yuka Scavia, and it was a ska band. Now, that's a genre of music that none of you have ever heard of, and there's a reason none of you have ever heard of ska music. It was only popular for about 15 minutes in the 90s. But Pierce thought their band was going to be the next big thing. And they were, getting some, they were getting a few gigs at some places around town in Orlando. And, and he had agreed that summer to go and work at a Christian camp uh, in North Carolina. And he was kind of hedging his bet, saying, no, I think I need to stay here and, you know, I don't want to miss the... I, don't want to, I want to make sure I catch the wave of Yucascavia as it takes off. And, uh, and so we were sitting together at a Buffalo Wild Wings in Oviedo, Florida. The music blaring, and I'll never forget the conversation. It went something like this, son, you need to do what you said you'd do and, and go to North Carolina. Be a part of that. I said, but son, if... If when you get there, you meet a bunch of Christian kids that work there and, and they're a part of a, a Christian group and maybe they go to a university up there, it'd be fine for me if you stay there and don't come back. Don't misunderstand, son. I love you and I'd miss you terribly. but watching you live in a small story is killing me. And you were made for better. That's the essence of Paul's prayer to the church in Ephesus, at least this second part of the request. He's saying, First of all, know that Christ lives in you. And then, if you want the power to change, if you want power in your life, if you want the, the power to, to live the things I'm about to tell you to do, 
if you want the power to know how to behave, dwell, become immersed, become blown away by the depth and the length and the strength and the power of God's love. It'll change you. We can try to get our identity from, from what we do. We can spend the rest of our lives living for our circumstances and hoping that they give us good favor. We can try to find our power by collecting books about people with power. We can tell stories of others that have power. We can dream of power that doesn't really matter. Or we can listen to Paul's prayer and realize it's a prayer for us as well. That there is real power that comes from knowing that Christ dwells in you. And there is great power in knowing and of his great unfathomable love. And then Paul finishes his prayer with a benediction just in case you still want to live small, Ephesus, just in case you still want to live by circumstances, or just in case you still think you can pull it off on your own good works, just in case you still think small, he gives the benediction to his prayer, and he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. A friend of mine, Terry, was telling me that we live in a world that hypes everything up all the time. Oh, this is the biggest Super Bowl ever. These are the biggest, most important playoffs they've ever had. This is the biggest, this is the biggest, this is the biggest. No. The biggest thing you can imagine here is small compared to the vastness of who God is. And that big God has chosen to live in and through you. And so just in case you're thinking too small, he ends the prayer by saying, more than you can imagine. Listen again to the words. Now to him who is able, he's talking about God, to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. God can do more than what you think and ask. The irony, I was working on this sermon yesterday and I got a phone call from somebody who's, who's really struggled for a long, long, long time. And the truth is, I've kind of given up on them. And I hung up the phone with my cynicism and thought, I don't think they'll ever change. And I come back to the text and it says, oh, Cofield, do you realize, do you realize who it is that you're praying to? That he can do far more abundantly than we ask or think. Think. I said, oh, God, forgive me. 
And may you rescue that person because you can. So church, nothing wrong with it if you collect comics. And maybe you would have the power of turning a 12-cent comic book into a $150 prize. That's real small compared to a God who wants to take the likes of me and you and dwell in us and make his home resident in our heart and have us be changed and transformed by his love. Now, we got a choice, church. We can play church and sing our songs and believe in a small God. I think that's what Paul was afraid of for the church in Ephesus. Or... We can allow this morning and this text and this prayer to not just be a prayer from Paul to the church, to God about Ephesus, but also a prayer for you and for me and for this church that we too would be empowered by the knowledge that he dwells in us and that we would be blown away by the depth that enormity of his love. Let's live in a bigger story.